Welcome to The Sword and Spirit, where we take a look at the issues both in and out of the church via teaching and interviews. The goal here is to stimulate thoughts and conversations that will lead to positive growth and action on the part of the listener. Our prayer is that those who have an ear to hear will hear what the Spirit is saying. And now here is the host, my father, Donald Reimer. last week we had an interview with Dave and Pam Lovett on their journey along the Silk Road based on the book from Kickapoo to Kathmandu if you haven't heard it please go back and listen to it it was a wonderful interview and I do apologize for some of the dead spots on there a little bit of technical difficulty I'm working on getting better equipment uh, so that I can do these interviews without interruption but overall it went really well yes a little long but I'm still praising and thanking God for an interview, and I believe it's well worth your time to listen to it in its entirety. Um, and of course, when you hit the dead spots, just keep listening, it'll kick back in again. Two great missionaries, two great servants of God who demonstrate that there are a lot of people out there like that who labor in absolute obscurity, not well-known or world-famous but like God's secret agents, so to speak, they get out there and they get the job done and give God glory. Amen. So today we're gonna wrap up a little bit of that series I had started and I know we skipped over it because of the interview but I thought it was well worth it and still do. Um, but we talked a little bit about falling away of, of the church from Christ and about the the uh, God's people forsaking the fountain of living waters which is Christ himself and making themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water and so what we want to do is continue on the way we talked about the way back and the way back, if you haven't heard it go back and listen to it it's uh, two podcasts ago, the way back where I lay out about reformation and I talked about the five pillars of said reformation that I absolutely am convinced you must return to. The five solas, uh, Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, and the scriptures alone. If we return to those five things, the next thing that comes behind that is what I call revival. Genuine, genuine revival. Now, let me tell you what revival is now. First of all, let me, let me define my terms. When I say revival, because I know a lot of things come to different people's minds depending on who you talk to as to what a revival is. And so when I say revival, I'm talking about a move of God, a visitation of God's Holy Spirit that returns the church to life, biblical life, genuine life, that takes men from death to life starts a reformation and then God can work and now why do you say that brother Reimer well I say that because that 
Broken cisterns are the systems of man, man-made ideas and thoughts and philosophies and ideas um, on how to do evangelism or how to reach God. And the, they are broken cisterns. They can hold no water. That is the Holy Spirit. God can't pour His Spirit on that mess in revival power. But when the church gets herself together and aligns herself with, by making the, the biblical cisterns, the ones that God has handed to us, which is what I just talked about, the five solos, for example. Once we get down on those basics, then God can pour out his spirit uh, and begin to work in the church and to make us strong in the faith. So that's what I mean by revival. Reformation uh, precedes revival. Reformation, a return to truth. And revival is a return to life. So you get truth and then you get life. You get lie, you get death. That's just how it works. Now here's what revival is not. Revival is not uh, a tent meeting. I know when we say revival and growing up as a kid, you know, some of you in the South, the old sawdust trailer used to call it and, and they'd throw up a tent in, tent in your town and they would have a revival. And they would preach to get people saved. I'm not opposed to that. If you want to have tent meetings that go around, that's fine. And let me just say as a sidebar, you don't see the tent meetings anymore because they found out that hotels and um, conferences are, are, are far better venues in terms of lucrative, making more money. Tent revivals cost money. And they, they, they tend to really be an expense and you don't really get the bang for your buck in terms of business, of, of making any money. But churches found out if you bring in the right speakers, somebody has a big name who can draw a crowd and they have the conferences, etc., they can, they can make a mint, you know. And um, so some of that stuff is just a, a matter, is, is a financial matters. It has nothing to do with uh, trying to see um, soul saves. It's one of those things where incidentally somebody might get saved or some a saint may actually grow a mature base on that conference. And that's not to say all conferences are bad. Maybe one day, God willing, sword and spirit will have a conference. Um, so I'm not saying they don't have them. I'm just simply saying that it kind of killed the tent meeting because the tent meetings were not nearly as lucrative. So for some churches... They could kill two birds with one stone. They could, one, um, make some money, and number two, uh, do pretty much the same thing the tent revivals did, which is to get people into the Word and studying, etc., etc. Those are the good ones I'm talking about. But then there are others that are just there for the, for the dollars. But you can tell. You can tell. You get what you pay for. And a tree is known by its fruit, so you, you can tell. But a revival, biblical revival, what I'm talking about is not that. I'm not talking about the tent meetings, the old tent revivals. That's not what I'm referring to when I say revival. Uh, here's another thing about a revival. It cannot be announced. It cannot be announced. Um, you can't put up a sign and say, we're going to have a revival from January 1st to, to, to January 7th. And, you know, so as if, as if to imply, and the reason why I say that, because it implies that after January 7th, 
the Holy Spirit stops working in revival power. And I'm like, no. Uh, I think Billy Graham came to the city in Madison Square Garden. I believe it was back in the 50s or early 60s. And he was supposed to be coming for one week, and I think he ended up staying for well over a month. Because God was at work. It was a genuine move of God. It's Holy Spirit. And people stayed and people got saved. Um, so a genuine revival has nothing to do with a, a with an announcement where you can say from here to here is when it's going to be revival. And here's something else. You can say it's going to start January 7th and, and end January 12th. And during that whole time, God doesn't. God's not doing or moving in any in any way, shape, or form in terms of uh, what would be considered to be revival power. It can just be a lot of theatrics. There are some people that are good at whipping up a crowd. Some people that have a natural born charisma. Not it's not the Holy Spirit. They're just naturally charismatic. They know how to work an audience. They can read the room, so to speak. And if you're, for example, if you're into the hooping style of preaching. Um, with with the Hammond organ going in the background, you can whip a crowd up, you know. And I know that, you know, because um, I've been in meetings like that. And yeah, it is entertaining. I like hooping because it's a, from a perspective of entertainment, it's very entertaining, and it can be kind of fun, I suppose. And I don't think God's gonna kill you because you enjoy something, and it's it can be less boring. But the problem with hooping is that so much of the hooping is there, and then the guy doesn't really say anything. He's just entertaining. And uh, and that organ, man, oh goodness, the organ, and you could feel that, right? So that creates excitement, and you whip people up into a frenzy. But then what did they preach? Or what, what was the result of said services? A tree is known by its fruit, because when everything is said and done, everybody goes back to doing exactly what they were doing before the revivalists came in. Um, and so evangelists, you know, if you're paying for an evangelist to come in as a, as a church, you want bang for your buck, right? We're paying you X amount of dollars and we're taking up some nice fat offerings for you and you can't move people to the altar. Not a good look for the evangelist, you know, in terms of for his business. And so he's got to find a lot of these guys use gimmicks and, and emotionalism to drive you to the altar so they can, you know. For example, if I'm an evangelist, I'm about winning souls, right? Okay, so I make the altar call, nobody comes up. So then I turn around and say, all right, now we're going to work on the church. You see what he just did there? I got to deliver on the goods. I got to show them that they're, gonna, that they're getting banged for their bucks. So since I can't get it, the sinner to come to the altar, then I got I to gotta work on the saints and get them to come to the altar, which is not that hard because most saints think, Salvation is something I have to do some kind of work or something to get deeper in God or whatever. And so, you know, you just throw the guilt trip on them and here they are at the altar. Uh, just by simply making them feel guilty. And then the evangelist looks good. So those tent meetings and those revivals, that's not it. That's not what I'm talking about when I talk about revival. Um, it can't be announced. There is no timeline. There is no timeline. You can't say from here to here for two weeks we're going to run revival. Now, what I would tell people, I said, now, you can say for two weeks we're going to have a tent meeting. We're going to have some outdoor services. That's what they are. But they're not revivals. Give it any other name, but please don't stick the name revival on it because it, it just ain't so. 
revivals, the revivals that I'm talking about are not accompanied with theatrics, people falling down, a lot of emotionalism. You know, you watch people come up and they get allegedly slain in the spirit, they fall down on the floor. And when they get up, they're just as mean and cantankerous as they were before they fell down on the floor. And they'll, and the, you know, people will say, oh, God is doing something. But I, I don't get it. What do you mean God is doing something? What is this something God is doing? I don't know. But it's very vague. And I'm not sure what God has done or what God is doing or what's supposed to have been the result. We don't know. All I know is I see that no change. There's no change. We go right back to the same old habits. Same old thing again. And so that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I don't see where that changes and makes anybody's life any better or how that upgrades anyone. But, uh, or emotionalism, you get a lot of emotion. Most evangelists attack the emotions. When you really, when you're preaching, you should be attacking uh, the entire being, not just the emotions, but also you want to attack the intellect. And, and reach into the, and also the, the, the spirit man or whatever you want to call it. Uh, deep call it unto deep. But a lot of it is just superficial, on the surface, emotionalism, and that's all it is. And you know how emotions are. Once the excitement dies down and you go back to the nine to five or you get back in the grind of life, it's just not as interesting as it was a few minutes ago, right? As it, as, as it was. So all that stuff that you accumulated. And saints can, you can become addicted to this thing like a, like a drug addict. And so church or revivals can become a narcotic. To where, you know, you, 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 you come in every Sunday morning or you come to the tent revival to get your hit for the week. And that'll carry me over till next Sunday and then I have to get another hit again. Uh, we're not drug addicts, people. We're saints. We're Christians. There's a whole different dynamic going on here. Um, uh, maybe I'll mention some things about Practicing the Presence of God. It's a good book by Brother Lawrence. It's short, very easy reading, and uh, well worth uh, a, a, a good read. Um, revival is not a matter of the right use of, of means or methods to create excitement. There are some evangelists who have taught in church history that you have to create excitements and you have to get the crowd whipped up um, or have to use the right use of means to create excitement to get people into the kingdom. Well, no, Jesus didn't say any of those things. That if you get people excited that now they're going to come into the kingdom. He never said that. There's no record of him saying that. You know, There's no record of Jesus ever doing that. Can you imagine Jesus hooping and then Telling Peter to play, you know, softly on the organ, uh, some nice music, and then Jesus, oh, they're giving an altar call. The closest thing you have to altar call from Jesus is when he said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Uh, that's in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Uh that's about the closest thing you're going to get to an altar call. And that's not necessarily an altar call. Um, I, I prefer to call it an invitation, but which is a little different than an altar call. 
But anyway, we'll talk about the history of altar calls and stuff another day. I won't get into that just yet. Okay. A revival is also... Um, is not... What else may not happen? Now, well, here's what may or may not happen. That's what I wanted to say. Now, let's move on a little bit and talk about what may or may not happen. Um... There may be large conversions uh, or mass conversions. That may happen. That may happen. There are times we see in the book of Acts, the first sermon that Peter preached, mass conversion. That's possible, and it's still possible today. Um, but let me say this. The Bible says the Lord added to the church daily such as be, should be saved. If your church isn't mega, don't... You know, the average church in America, I believe, is like two, 200, 250. That's the average. Even with all the megachurches. I know we have a proliferation of megachurches in the country. But the average is 200, 250. The average life of span of a pastor in most churches is about four or five years. Uh, of course, in African-American church and Hispanic churches, we're a little bit more loyal. So we hold on to our pastors to, uh, practically till death, which is fine. I don't like the five-year turnover thing either. But that's neither here nor there because... Um, God is the one who puts up one and sets one down. So, you know, some of those things I just leave in his hands. But having said that, um, there may be mass conversions sometimes. But just because there aren't mass conversions does not mean a revival is not taking place. So don't look at the numbers and, and how many people got saved every week. Oh my God, revival is breaking out. Remember, it says revival is a return to life, and, I'm, and it's mainly focused on the believer, not so much the world, although it can impact that way. Uh, here's something that you might see, is visitations of the Holy Spirit in unusual places uh, to, con to convict the sinner of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, we've heard stories in history, church history about the Holy Spirit falling on dance halls, about the Holy Spirit moving in, in places, nightclubs, bars, prisons. Um, what revival lets us to see is that God can save anyone anywhere at any time. And no, you do not need an altar call for people to get saved. Now, I'm 100% in favor of, of doing altar calls, giving people opportunity to come forward to get some prayer. And we can see where you're at and maybe help you know, the the process along gives some coaching, so to speak. But uh, you don't need to get saved at the altar. God saved me in my... God started speaking to me in, in my fifth grade class. And um, by the time I got home, I was under Holy Ghost conviction. And I gave my heart to Christ at the age of 10. No preacher. Hear it? No preacher. We did not go to church Sunday morning. We just woke up, ate some breakfast... Watch some cartoons and they went outside to play. That was it. No church. And yet God was able to reach me at the age of 10. I am not special, people. There's nothing particular about it. It's just that God can do whatever he wants, however he wants, the way he wants. And so don't get caught up with the, you know, only in the church or only at the altar. God can save anybody anywhere at any given time. People have been saved in cars. People have been saved in bars. People have been saved, uh, you know, working in as a security guard. People have been saved 
uh, on a vacation, boating, on a yacht, whatever. God can do whatever he wants because he's everywhere. And in, in a revival, you're going to see a visitation of God's Holy Spirit in a very unique way. You're going to see God's going to start touching people in hearts um, in odd places and strange places. Remember now, the Apostle Paul wasn't in the synagogue. He was on his way to murder Christians. How about that? You're on your way to commit murder. And God knocks you off your horse and converts you. If that's not mercy, I don't know what is. So that's the grace of God. So keep that in mind. These are things that may or may not happen. Now I'm going to pause here and, and, and stay right here on sin, righteousness, and judgment. Just bear with me till, for the next segment. that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you. Amen. This is the three major works of the Holy Spirit. And again, Jesus talked about religion makes you, you strain the gnat and you swallow the camel. You put an emphasis on the small things and the major things you don't, you don't put emphasis on so we emphasize the joy that the holy spirit brings we emphasize his protection we emphasize um the the the, ro the romanticizing of the, how the holy spirit works in our lives and we feel his presence and sense his love and all of that okay that's wonderful good 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 but the most important thing that the holy spirit has come to the main thing is to convince the world when he comes he will convince the world of three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. He will demonstrate to the sinner that he's lost. Because that's where it's repentance starts. you got to see your true condition, your true state. The true state of the loss is in Ephesians 4. It says, having the understanding darkened, being separated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them and the hardness of their heart. That's the condition of the loss. And the Holy Spirit reveals that to them. It is the work, and this is the beautiful thing. It's not my job to bring conviction. I'm just, the, the, the Holy Spirit is a prosecuting attorney. He just calls you to the witness stand to give forth witness. You give forth witness, but he's the prosecutor. It's up to him to bring the conviction. And that sets me free. That helped me in evangelism real good. I, I used to feel so bad because I'm talking to people and, and folk weren't getting saved. And I realized it had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit and how God determines to work on that person's heart. Now, to be sure, I have to give the proper message. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings the conviction. He's the one who opens a person's eyes to the truth. Because the God of this world has blinded their minds, lest the light of the glorious gospel should shine through. So what God has to do is you need, you need the Holy Spirit to bring true light and illumination to penetrate that darkness. So he convinces the world of sin. You guys are sinners. 
You're lost without God. Then he convinces the world of righteousness. What do you mean? He convinces the world. He demonstrates to the sinner and reveals to the sinner that the righteousness that God requires can only be attained by faith in Christ and Christ alone. That's his revelation. And then he convinces the world of judgment that if you don't know Christ and the forgiveness of your sins, if you haven't been passed from death to life through repentance and faith in Christ, then you're under the wrath and the judgment of God. And yes, an eternal hell waits, awaits you. So those are, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And whenever there's a revival, a lot, where there becomes a new emphasis, a re-emphasis on those three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And those are the things that are hammered from the pulpit to bring men to saving, to saving grace. This is what happens in a genuine revival. The third thing that happens in revivals is genuine displays of power, such as healing, uh, knocking demons out of people, deliverance, if you want to call it that. When there's a genuine, when there's a revival, there's a genuine. Now, listen to me. I am a proponent. I do not believe that, that these things cease with the apostles. However, I don't believe that they're that common either. This idea that this, this should be happening every day. My challenge to people who claim that they have these healing powers and this ministry of healing, which we're going to go into that because there is no official ministry of healing. Uh, some things are universal to the church, to any believer. This one guy is not, not going to be, you know, any believer at any time can be somewhere and pray for somebody to be healed. And if God so chooses, that person will be healed. It's just that simple. But having said that, um, a lot of people who are these healing evangelists today, um, who are making all these claims of raising the dead and all of that, um, when Jesus healed people, he always sent them to the Pharisees. They were the doctors and sort of like the official government officials who could declare a person clean, unclean, healed, or whatever. And so Christ sent the evidence to the doctors, to the government of that day, to demonstrate what that he had power to do these things. But people say, I raised the dead, so I'm going to ask you one question. Where's the death certificate? Don't tell me the guy got hit by a car and we prayed for him and God raised him up. Um, you got the, the, the ambulance can, I've seen that, you know, with the ambulance, they can do that. They show up and they give you the defibrillator, boom, boom, they shock you back to life. Now, all of that, of course, God gets glory for all of that. And that takes nothing away from the glory of God. But look, that's not what I mean by divine healing. I mean your graveyard dead, where they... You know, at, at 4.05 on the operating table or the hospital, the, the hospital, the doctor comes in and says, okay, mark it, 12.05 a.m., uh, time of death. And then they get the death certificate prepared. Then, so now you have a legal document stating this person's dead. Then they put you in the morgue. The, the, the funeral director comes and he picks you up, takes you out, 
and they get you back to the morgue and now they're prepping you for the funeral. They gut you, take all your vital organs out. They drain your blood and then pump you full of formaldehyde. Now, I challenge any healing evangelist, I'm not saying it's impossible because God can do anything, to show me where somebody who has, has been in the morgue, full of formaldehyde, no body, no internal organs, and no, uh, and no blood in the body, because the Bible says life is in the blood, where they went in there and raised that person up from the dead. That's what I'm talking about. Because that's what Jesus did with Lazarus. He waited specifically four days till the man was graveyard dead, body decomposing, and he, to demonstrate that he was the resurrection of life, he called that man forth. That's what I mean by raising the dead. That's my definition. Secondly, if these healing evangelists were doing, if I had the kind of power they were claiming to have, I would empty the hospitals. You know how much money the insurance companies would pay you to empty the hospital? Because they don't want to pay for it anyway. And so, Jesus emptied the hospitals of his day. Well, okay, they didn't have hospitals per se. But people came out to him in the desert. People tore the, the, the tops of roofs off to be lowered down. And he said he, he healed all manner of sickness and disease. So, that's why the multitudes are following him. Crowds of people. You, you start healing people. I mean, like, really healing people. There will be no place for you to run or hide, practically. People will find a way to your doorstep into your house. Because they want to be healed. So, that's why I don't buy a lot of this stuff. Um, when they come with all these healing, etc. Uh, have I seen people get healed? Yes. I know people who were healed from multiple sclerosis. And there is evidence for it. We can see before here, here's the lesions on the brain where they had MS. Now you can see where there's no lesions on the brain where they didn't have MS. And by the way, if, if, you, if, if at all possible, it may not be possible, but if at all possible, get, keep your, get your medical records and get your doctor to sign off on some things that you had this, but you no longer have that. Some of them may not do it because some doctors don't believe either. But that you can't control that. But try to get as much evidence as you can documented evidence. You had this, and now you don't have that. And, uh, Hank Hanegraaff talks about one guy sent in an um, you know, x-ray, and you can see where he had the cancer, and now he didn't have the cancer. But what he failed to explain is the cancer was removed surgically. That does not qualify. Now, we thank God for the surgeons, but that does not qualify as a miracle. A miracle is when God suspends natural law he, so that he, can over, he overrides natural law. Well, the scientists are going, when the scientists heal you, so to speak, if you want to call it that, they're going according to natural law. They're not suspending any natural law. Well, when God suspends the natural laws and just makes you get up, that's divine healing. I believe that God is all over the world now, probably doing miracles and miraculous things, but in obscurity and in quiet. God is healing people who aren't, who don't even, who don't even know him. Don't even know why the sickness went away. Um, because that's the goodness of God. And yes, you say, well, does God do secret healings? Yeah, in some cases he does because Jesus healed people. And he said, no, please don't tell anybody. Of course, they didn't listen. They went back and did it anyway. So having said that, 
Um, like I said, so I do believe that in genuine revival, there will be real healing, there will be real deliverance. Certainly demons being cast out of people, wherever the Holy Spirit's at work, the demonic demons get exposed, and then in Jesus' name, you cast them out. Um, but that's what happens in revival. An unusual amount of of uh, of of the miraculous, but it's not coming from the healing evangelists. It's not from the poppy show, from the, from the dog and pony show you see on television. That's not it. It comes from normal people like you and me who are living everyday everyday lives, and every once in a while, God allows us to do extraordinary things. And so the real work of God is being done in obscurity and hidden. It's not being necessarily seen per se. Not flashy on television. And so that's what I mean by healing and deliverance. Not this, like I said, the uh, dog and pony show that you normally see on television. That, that's not what I'm referring to. Okay, now let's take a little look here at what will happen when there is a genuine revival. Now, in the event there is a genuine revival, revival really... It can affect the masses, um, and, and that's what I was just trying to show you in that last segment. And by the way, this is not exhaustive. I'm just touching on minor, on uh, some mountaintop points here. I'm not, this is not a deep dive. Um, but just to kind of whet your appetite, kind of get you thinking a little bit. But I have a, about six things here. Number one, individual believers... Are, Maturing in the faith. Individual believers maturing in the faith. Spiritual growth. Maturation. And people begin to start to grow. You know, it's a, it amazes me that every week in, in some churches that I've been in, every week is the same people at the altar. Now, granted, there are people struggle with things, and if if you're struggling with something, like I knew guys that did drugs, and I would say if you're if you're if you if you're giving your heart to Christ and you want to get free from drugs, but you're struggling with it, and let's say you got high last night before church service, come to church, keep going to the altar, never stop coming until God brings that deliverance. Don't give up, okay? Um, for for whatever reason, seek help, of course. And if you got to go detox or whatever, do what you got to do. But uh, don't stop coming to church because you fell into sin last night. That's the that's insane to not show up to church. The church is, a, is not a place for perfect people. And so since nobody's perfect um, and we mess up, come to church. It's all right. God, that's what God wants you to do. The devil's going to tell you, well, you sin, so you got to go away from God. And get yourself together first and then come to God. No, God says, come as you are. Don't worry about it. I'll get you together. You just show up here to altar. Let's meet right here at church. And, and we'll, we'll handle it from there. So you begin to mature in God. You begin to see some spiritual growth. And then after a while, you begin to realize, I don't need to run to the altar every week. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing some of the things that I used to do. I'm doing, or I'm doing less of. 
And so that's very important to look at. So this real maturation and growth. Um, you know, every week, if every week I'm making an altar call and every week the same, exactly the same people are coming up in mass, then that's a little, a little suspect. I'm like, okay, what's going on here? No, none of these people are maturing. Uh, number two, uh, a deeper devotion of prayer, a, a greater prayer life. And when there's genuine revival, there's a, your, your prayer life expands. And by that I mean you spend more time in prayer and you start praying more on a global scale. You start praying and focusing more on what Christ wants to do in the earth to uh, preach the, the gospel of the kingdom, uh, to see dead people come to life. The, uh, that's what God wants. And so your prayer life begins to align itself more with the will of God than with your own, you know, needs and wants and can I have, give me and can I have uh, type of prayers. Third, I think I'm going to leave that one for the last. Let's go to number four. Uh, there will be true holiness. True holiness rooted in biblical truth. Genuine holiness. The mistake that people make when they look at Calvinism, and I'm not a Calvinist, I like a lot of the Reformed theology, I don't agree 100% with it, as you can see I'm not a cessationist, but, Hi, my name um, is but the thing about it is that true holiness, if you're really saved, just because you're justified by faith alone and by grace alone does not now mean you can live any way you want. The Bible says in Titus that, that that the grace of God teaches us to un, to deny ungodliness. So if the, if the evidence that a person is saved and is walking in faith and has received the grace of God, the evidence of that is that there is less sin in that person's life and the sin begins to fall off and the weights and the things that so easily beset us. So your holiness flows out of the, the grace of God it, because you're attached to God and now grace is now empowering you and transforming you. Remember I told you before in Ezekiel 36, he said, I'll take away the heart of stone. That God take away the stone heart. That's what the grace of God does. And then God gives you a heart of flesh. That's what the grace of God does. And then God writes his laws on a heart of flesh because he put them on stone, doesn't do any good, but he put it in a heart of flesh, it does good. That means the word of God has now become internalized in the heart where it belongs. And then he said, I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and my statutes. So regenerative revival brings that Ezekiel 36 into focus and it deepens that. And now there's a holiness that you don't know where it's come from. You just feel all of a sudden one day, you, the things that used to bother you don't bother you anymore. They say when Billy Roberts, who was the founder of Soul Saving Station, when he got saved, it said that he went for a couple of days and hadn't even got high and did not have the urge to get high. That's what I mean by genuine revival power. Where God does the work in you so complete and with such depth that the things that were binding you don't bind you as much anymore. Or you're completely free altogether and you start to mature in God and to grow. And that's where your true holiness is going to come from. But there'll be genuine holiness, not a pharisaical holiness that's all about show and, 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 and my reputation and everything else. This is going to be holiness because 
you would have become a partaker of the divine nature. He that is born of God does not live a, a life of practicing sin because God's seed, his life is in him. And so God comes and imparts his nature and his communicable attributes, which love, mercy, grace, truth, patience, uh, the fruit of the spirit. God imparts all that to us in terms of his character. Now, the immutable ones, you don't get. We don't become all-knowing, all-powerful, all-whatever. We don't do any of that. That's not tra being transferred to us. But particularly the divine nature means that God's seed, God's life, his very nature, his essence of who he is, is in us. And now we're living a life of holiness based upon our connection. Holiness is not something you do. Holiness is a state of existence. God exists as holy. That's part of his very existence. And God wants to impart that to us so that our holiness now also becomes rooted in part of our existence. And so now we're not doing certain things because we can't. We're doing things because we just don't want to. Can you go over there and sin? Yeah, I can go over there and sin. But you know what? I don't want to. Desire's not there. Not doing it. Don't have any interest in it. The other thing is uh, an increase in uh, an increase in faith, an increase in your faith. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, of course. And so, when there's genuine revival, our faith will increase in terms of faith for deliverance and faith for walking the Christian life. And our and that faith will cause us to have a deeper commitment to Christ. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and come follow me. And that is what happens in a genuine revival. Number six. A prayer, your prayer to God and desire for God to meditate and study the word of God. Your, your, uh, your, your, your desire for God and there's going to be a deeper desire to read the Word of God and meditate on the Word of God. That's genuine revival. Stop looking for the fanfare and the showy falling down on the floor and organs going and people running around screaming. That has nothing to do with it. That's superficial. That's on the surface. It doesn't plumb the depths. King David said of God, You desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you make me to know wisdom. When there's genuine revival, there becomes a joy. See, when people tell me that, that, that church is boring, it's not that church is boring, it's that you're dead in trespasses and sins. You're dead. Because if you were alive in Christ, there would be an excitement about church. There would be an excitement about the hymns. There would be an excitement about hearing the word of God. There would be an anticipation of, of the worship service. But when these things are are boring to us, and oh my God, you know, just, oh. maybe you need to take a hard, good, hard look at yourself, check yourself, to see whether you be in the faith or not. Because Christ gives us joy, he get, and that, that's a joy and a peace that's not worked up, it's not somebody standing in front of the church beating you, ah, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, it's not somebody beating you, and I ain't gonna stop saying it until y'all praise the Lord, we ain't leaving here until y'all shout. That's not it. It's a natural joy. It's a natural part of who we are. These are the things that bring about genuine revival.
in the Christian life. Of the results, I should say, of the of revival. These are the signs of revival. And it's generally on an individual level, it's not necessarily on a corporate level, but God can bring but if if, if God's moving in, in in the individuals, the singing is better. The worship is better. Everything's gonna improve in the church. Because you're gonna have a group of people in there who have touched heaven, so to speak. And now that life of God is beginning to flow through them because they've, re they've returned to the truth, reformation. And because of that, returning to that, those five basic pillars and standing upon those, then God's life and work can begin in them to transform them, to make them more like himself. We're going to talk about, in our next session, I'm going to deal with the idea of false religion to contrast that with revival. Because a lot of what we see is superficial, on the surfacey stuff, and that's all we emphasize. But we don't look, pull back the curtain and see what's going on deep on the inside of our hearts, not to look at anybody else's heart, but to look at my own. Now let me back up to number three, and I will end on this note here. Number three is a life in focus, what I call the single eye. The single eye. Jesus referred to the single eye, and, and I think that's... That's predominantly King James English when he talks about the single eye. And that's where you want to be. You want to have a focus on one thing. Um, and I'll sh I shared a message uh, this last Sunday and I'll, probably sh and I'll probably get back around to sharing it again as well. But it's very important for us to have a single eye, to have a, a single uh, focus so that we can put our attention on Christ and Christ becomes the center of our lives and he becomes the main thing. Because if we don't make Christ the main thing, then what's going to happen is we're not going to be able to, we're going to get caught up in all the superficial stuff you know, you see the services and they spend the whole time, you know, I sent the pastor, the preacher, son and such, and he gave me money and, and you know, I was blessed. And, and that's not the gospel. That's not, you can get, what does it profit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? I mean, what, what, what are you going to give in exchange for your soul? And so that's very important to understand that you don't want to exchange your soul for something superficial. So it's very important that we that we get this. The single eye means that our focus is on Christ. The gaze of the soul is on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Very important to see. Very important. And so we want to, we don't want to become double-minded. See, the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. That's the opposite of a single eye. Double-minded man. Elijah made the, the challenge to the prophets on Mount Carmel. How long are you people going to halt between two opinions? If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then go ahead and serve Baal. 
But make up your mind. Where, 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 what side are you guys on? It's not about whether God is on your side. The question is, are you on? Is are you on God's side? Very important to see. Now here is where Jesus talks about the single eye. This is in Matthew uh, six, starting at verse nineteen, and we'll read there, and then you'll see what I'm talking about. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Amen. The single eye. You cannot serve two masters. In this case, he's referring to the love of money, which is a symbol of when you get money, you get power. You know, what's that hip hop song? You know, first you get the money. And then you get the power, then you get the respect. Money, power is the key to life. Money, power will keep you eating right, so now you see the light. Money, power, respect is the key to life. Okay, that's how the world looks at things. And and that's true. If in the natural, that's true. You get money, you get power, then you get respect. It's Mr. and Sir. When you walk into the certain various stores, they know that you're super wealthy. So, yeah, that that's that's that is the truth. But Jesus said you can't have both. You can't have both. You got it's either that it's either that or me. You can't love us both because you're gonna love one or hate the other. Now you can have money, power, and respect, but you can't love it. You gotta love Christ, and that's what he means. Is the eye, and that's where the single eye comes from. He said, if your eye is good, or if you have a single eye, you have a single focus in life, which is on Christ, seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. If you put it there, the Bible says that your eye, your whole body will be full of light. See that? You focus on Christ, you get light. However, if you do the opposite, if we do the opposite, if we if we don't focus on Christ and our light, our eye is bad, that means it's not focused on Christ. Then what happens? The whole body is full of darkness. Now, if the light is darkness, then the darkness, which is darker than light, how great is the darkness that's on the inside of you? The single eye. You don't want to be a double-minded man. And genuine revival, genuine revival brings us to a focus on Christ and the gaze of the souls upon Him. And as we begin to mature and grow in Christ, He becomes a priority and everything else becomes secondary and irrelevant. Amen and amen. Thank you.
thank you for listening to this edition of The Sword and the Spirit. As I said, I didn't intend for this to be exhaustive, so I just wanted to touch on some major points. Uh, So for your homework for the next podcast, read the 23rd chapter of Matthew, and we will discuss superficial religion. Religion that's only on the surface and doesn't really help anybody. Um, And you can learn what you need to avoid. Because Jesus said, our righteousness had to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Well, you're not going to beat those guys because they were were masters on at least externally. But internally, well, that's a whole other story. So, again, listen to some of my uh, previous podcasts. I thank you all for Who Made How to Sharpen Your Sword, the number one podcast of all played thus far it wasn't it was way down on the list but now it's gone up and i thank you for that and i'm praying that i said some things in there on how to study the bible that would be really helpful uh coming soon i'm going to have an interview with another pastor in australia who has written a book about how to study the bible as well and we'll be doing some more of that because like i said what i did was not exhaustive and there's probably a lot more things that you could do it with intent most of these podcasts, you see how long they are. I just can't exhaust everything. We, we never get finished with anything. And so for the reason I can't do it. Now also, you can please go back to the Mars Hill Project, listen to that, Val Eliason, and uh, learn about some missionaries. These are people that I'm trying to bring on the show that have a deep commitment to Christ and hopefully will inspire you because these people that I'm bringing on have inspired me. Um... And then Lael Divine, young, black, Christian, and pregnant. She wrote a book about it. And uh, listen to that one as well. She's right, comes on right after the Mars Hill Project one with Valley Lyson. And then the, the interview I did last week from Kickapoo to Kathmandu, please, by all means, if you have not heard it yet, it's powerful too, in my estimation, of the greatest missionaries probably on the planet. And that's just my humble opinion. Um, but I've known them and I know their commitment to Christ. Not perfect, but they are doing what God has called them to do. And there's no dog and pony show there. They're, that's the real deal. So God bless you and thank you for listening. And just pray for me as I got some more interviews lined up. And yes, some, not all interviews will be on biblical topics. We may do some self-help as well. I'm not opposed to it. But I just don't think it belongs in the pulpit per se on Sunday morning. We're going there to worship God and we're going to talk about uh, the gospel of life. But there's nothing wrong with talking about improving yourself in various areas. So we may do, um, with scarcity, some of those um, as well. So God bless you. Thanks for listening. And I will see you, God willing, next week. God bless.